Hello and welcome to Yester Ladies. I'm Dana. And I'm Heather. Heather, you always laugh at me when I <laughs> when I make my introduction. You're just so chipper. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you gotta like you gotta convey Woo, your emotions through your through your face. Yeah, this is true. Or it doesn't show in your voice. You're just like gleefully <laughs> gleaming at me over your Well, computer. I'm so happy. Here we are, we're recording another episode of our wonderful podcast, and it's International Women's Day. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> the holiday made tailor made for yester ladies. It really is. It really, really is. <laughs> so Jenny our listeners who are listening to previous episodes on international yester ladies way Wait. to way to connect on international yester ladies there should be a day like that <laughs> <laughs> international women's day my sorry my apologies <laughs> so confused <laughs> anyway happy international women's day Hooray. even though when we release this episode it'll be St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> so happy St. Patrick's Day as right, well. Right. Both holidays. Yeah. Celebrate both, you know? Why not? <laughs> so because we're releasing this on St. Patty's Day, we decided to choose an Irish figure mm-hmm. for our yester lady. And uh, who do we choose, Dana? <gasps> You're asking me. I am. Oh my God. How You're the t- tables have turned. Oh, they've turned. <laughs> well, Heather, you just want me to say her name <laughs> before you do. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. <laughs> it was not intentional, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. We've been we've been trying to get it in. Well, Heather's been trying to get into her <laughs> head how to pronounce this lady's name. She is Constance Markovitz. We are we think thinking. <laughs> and you might be thinking that's an odd name for an Irish figure. <laughs> that's what I thought when you first sent me yeah. this lady. I was like, I she remembered that we're supposed to be doing someone Irish, right? Because <laughs> I knew when I texted Dana that name would not translate. No. <laughs> so I said she married a Polish dude in, in brackets. I went, yes. okay, fine, All right. <laughs> but there's no O'Donnellys or no, but her seems to be seen here. Her maiden name is Gore Booth. Yes, Constance Gore Booth. You know fairly irish it's not it's not o'donnell but it's <laughs> it's this more irish than markovitz this is true much more yeah <laughs> yes. so uh, if you've never heard of constance markovitch uh she was an anglo-irish countess and political activist yeah was she, ever. she was also a firebrand like yeah wow <laughs> what a fighter she's an so. intense lady she is intense intense I feel is like the word for her this is i mean like i say we definitely we wanted to do an irish woman mm-hmm. uh to release on saint patrick's day because we're trying to capitalize on the holiday naturally mm-hmm. so um so you know it's great that we're doing an Irish woman, but I was just delighted that you found this like extremely <laughs> nationalistic, like ready to fight and die for Ireland woman. Like you could not have a better choice she's for St. So, Patrick's Day. She's, she's perfect. so incendiary. Like, she is. Just up in arms, literally. Yes. <laughs> she's literally oh, yes. up in arms multiple times <laughs> in her life. She's just so tough mm-hmm. and like. I don't know, stern and violent and like she is. scary. She is. Yeah. I was reading some of the later stuff about the battles and we'll get into this. And I thought, my God, she's, she would be so intimidating. Like I would be scared of her. Yeah. So, well, what it, one of the sources described her as a strident speaker, I think. <laughs> seems to match her. Which is awesome. <laughs> yes. Fierce. Fierce is the word. And we're yeah. doing nothing with this episode to uh, work against the stereotype of the fiery Irish <laughs> no. character. She definitely fits the bill. There, yeah. So, well, but I mean, you know, she believed in what she was fighting for. And really, I think most of the time she, she was fighting for a pretty fair cause. Right. right. Uh, the Irish had a lot to be angry about. Right. Um, and I think and- we tend to sympathize with any people who are fighting for self rule and self government. So, well, fighting against. You know. The imperial british forces <laughs> and as much as we love the british we, we do we, we just spent before we started recording this episode we spent like half an hour talking about sense and sensibility <laughs> <laughs> because we haven't talked about it enough in the past we're both like anglophiles to the extreme i think right. but we are able to recognize england's historical flaws and uh, their imperialism is definitely one yes. of them, and their treatment of the Irish is certainly lamentable. Correct. We're not to fans say the least. of colonialism. No. Although we are fans of the British. We yeah. Don't, we don't like when the two mix. Yeah. Yes. We're fans of British culture. <laughs> <laughs> British art yes. and culture and, yes. and, you know, lady novelists. <laughs> um, anyway, that's quite a 
digression. <laughs> that was quite a digression, but whatever. All right. I don't care. It's International Women's Day. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want because <laughs> I'm a woman on International Women's Day. Stick it to the man. That's know? right. <laughs> Like, exactly. like Constance Markovich. Like Con- nice. Nice segue <laughs> back into our actual topic. Um, so Constance, born uh, Gore Booth, as we mentioned, um, she was born in uh, 1868 in February in London, actually. Um, and she was the eldest of three daughters and two sons of Sir Henry William Gore Booth. Um, who was a philanthropist and explorer. And it sounds like he was a pretty interesting guy. So as much as I think her parents, she kind of rebelled it. They, you know, they wanted a proper daughter and they didn't kind of want what she gave them. I think in a lot of ways, um, she had to kind of have a family background of, of, I don't know, interesting characters who were not necessarily satisfied with the status quo. Um, so uh, just, you know, this actually is somebody that we should also consider doing. Uh, her sister, Ava, was a campaigner for women's suffrage. And that's, I didn't look into her any further, but I feel like we should at mm-hmm. some point. I agree. I just wrote down, she's a key figure in the suffrage movement and, and stopped there, but we should. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Add her to the list. Um, so Constance with her sister, Ava and the rest of her siblings spent most of her childhood, um, at the family home in Lissadell. And even though she spent most of her adult life in Dublin, she always kind of, uh, identified with the West of Ireland and had a really strong attachment, uh, to that part of the country. And that was in County Sligo I have here. Thank you. So if you're familiar with the Irish counties or if you are an Irish listener, whoa, oh. uh, County Sligo was where she was from. And if you are an Irish listener, please forgive our pronunciation of the, the Irish words Gaelic later on. Terms yeah. upcoming. They're going to be rough. Yeah. I, we say this in like every episode, unless it's about like a North American, like Anglo woman. <laughs> we uh, were always going on about apologizing for our pronunciations. But Sorry. Sorry. Yes. Now we're apologizing for our apologies but whatever it's who we are say love you we're canadian i'm not gonna apologize for that it's international (laughs) women's day i'm gonna do whatever the hell i want (laughs) you do it i'm thank you you do you dana i will i always do (laughs) so the family uh the gore booths uh were wealthy they were well to do and um you know pretty high up in social standing as you might have guessed uh her her father sorry being a, a lord so they were descended from 17th century planters and they were very prominent landowners. And as I said, they were very wealthy and they had a lot of social standing. So she had a pretty privileged upbringing. Um, and apparently, again, this is like an indication that, you know, this was a family who they valued the arts. They were a little more interesting than maybe your run of the mill aristocracy um, because they loved to entertain. They had these lavish events and they hosted a lot of guests and one of the more famous of their guests was uh, the poet Yeats hmm. who uh, actually wrote a poem about um, Constance and Ava entitled In Memory of Ava Gore Booth and Constance Markovitz and he wrote that in 1927. So I, I should again like why didn't I read that poem? I should have read that poem. <laughs> I just kind of like, I, I read that and I was like oh I should read that poem and then didn't hmm. so go read the poem there you go you can yeah it <laughs> um uh but apparently the poem talks about his visits to lisadel and the uh later careers of both ava and constance which is pretty cool so we definitely should read that poem we should. we'll put mm-hmm. a link to it on yeah the we should yeah. make a note of that dana <laughs> um so <laughs> So Constance enjoyed kind of outdoor activities, um, including hunting, driving, riding, and apparently she was especially well known for her skill with a rifle and as a rider in the saddle, which, I mean, her skill with a rifle will come in handy <laughs> later very, in her life. Very much. Foreshadowing. <laughs> uh, in terms of their education, uh, she and her sister were educated at home by governesses, as was customary for girls of their station 
Um, and her her education would have consisted mostly of the genteel arts of poetry, music, and art appreciation, which I mean, all very valid uh, subjects. I, but, always, uh, I always think how much I would enjoy those. I know those subjects yeah. until I remembered that they would be the only things I would be learning. I, know, I always I was think like, that oh. like a girl's education is yeah. On the surface, like oh, like <laughs> those music, are all art, things of I, interest to me. That sounds except, lovely, and then right. you're like oh, but. I would know how to add. Right. <laughs> Percents would confound me. <laughs> Fractions. Fractions, yes. Oh, dear. Um, so to uh, cap off her childhood to as a, as a woman of her standing would have done at the time, in 1886, she made a grand tour of the continent, yes. which uh, that's another thing that yes. I like. <laughs> Where was my grand tour? I didn't get to go on a grand tour. Um, and then the next year, she was presented to Queen Victoria. So she's out in society now as a as a young woman. Um, so, I mean, really, she had a very aristocratic um, childhood and education, which is... I don't know when you when you hear more about what she fought for in her her later life, it's even more surprising because here's this like upper class lady like in every sense of the word, a lady. Mm -hmm. And she is, um, she's fighting in this very kind of common folk rebellion. <laughs> right. It's a very grassroots, very grassroots rebellion. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And she actually did get quite a bit of flack from that. And it took a long time mm -hmm. for the members of the rebellion. And we'll get into this later, but for them to accept her because she did come from wealth and position and yeah. that made them very suspicious of her. And it took them quite, she had to prove herself. Yes, it took her quite a long time to gain their trust. And, and rightly so. I mean, yeah, it makes sense that most of these people would have come from poverty and were fighting to better their lives and the life of their country. But uh, she was definitely going the opposite direction from most of the the members, and uh, yeah, it makes it even more admirable, interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 pretty cool. I mean, she could so easily have just gone and had, you know, the cultured, comfortable life, right? Um, and even kind of after she married, she could have continued on the path that her and her husband were on, which I'll talk about right now. Mm -hmm. um, so her kind of her passion was art. And her parents didn't really want to fund her, her her further artistic education, but apparently she she worked on them and worked on them, and finally she persuaded them to fund her studies at the Slade School of Art in London, and she enrolled there in 1893. I'm not sure exactly how long she studied there, but at some point she actually moved to Paris to continue her art education, which is pretty cool. And while she was in Paris, she met another art student, Count Casimir Dunin Markowitz, um, which of, is quite the name. Of Poland. Of Poland, <laughs> yes. He was a widower and he was, I think, quite wealthy. Or I'm assuming quite wealthy. Now, I have a note that he was penniless. Oh, so, so maybe he was a second or third or fourth son or something. Right, right. But his family owned a lot of land he in had, the Ukraine. Right. He had position mm -hmm. uh, and the title. But not a lot of wealth. But I think he personally may have been penniless so okay interesting. interesting yes very that is interesting so um they ended up marrying in london in 1900 and interesting point she was 32 years old yeah. which was like ancient at the time <laughs> for a woman to marry i think especially a woman of hers like she yes. should have i think one of the sources we read talked about um she like put off marriage for a long time and her parents yes. were I have a note about that. that, right? that, yeah. that she refused to marry for years and years against her family's wishes. Yeah. And uh, do you have these notes about what sort of happened during the courtship with Kim no, Casimir? I don't. Okay, so apparently it was a very odd courtship, and uh, he would duel men who insulted her. <laughs> on like a routine basis and then when they married she purposely left out the portion of the vows about obeying her ah. husband which I, I, my eyes lit up when i saw that i thought ha woman like that. for the for the ages i do like yes. that i always think about um in the laura engel books she uh she does the same thing and yeah. i love that detail that she talks about when when she marries almanza wilder Yay. it was my first literary boyfriend um what's odd is they still ask you today like you can still have those in the really today. they yeah. haven't taken them out completely nope, they've kept them the same in the, the catholic, vows, yeah, uh, in the catholic okay. liturgy it's still the same wow. and so you have to you have to make sure they know not to say that part does it 
Is it at least egalitarian now? Like, do the men? Oh is no, it in the, it's no, just for the it's women. Just in the, yeah. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, just in case you don't know what we're talking about, um, traditionally in the marriage vows, and apparently still traditionally in the Catholic right. ceremony, wedding ceremony, um, in the vows, the woman um, is said is supposed to say she will obey um, her husband, and there is no requirement that he do the same reciprocal line no. in the man's vows. Yes. Um, so I always think that's. That's cool when yes. a lady and in, yeah, in the Laura Engel books, when Laura Engel's books, when she when she met, weds El Manzo, <laughs> she talks to him about saying like I don't I don't think I could in good conscience pledge to obey right. somebody. I can't I can't promise to obey you when I you know have to go with my own judgment. And I love that. I think that's, <laughs> yes. that's awesome. So Constance did the same, which is pretty cool. Yes, she did. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, as we said, they were married in 1900 and she was 32 and their daughter Maeve was born the next year. Um, apparently and unfortunately, I guess she wasn't really, it sounds like she wasn't, her interest didn't necessarily lie so much long-term in being a, a wife and a mother. Um, so it's kind of unfortunate that she if that was how she felt, it's unfortunate <laughs> she, she that was she, both of those things, yeah, right. that she kind of, you know, got herself into those situations. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you know, it sounds like they did fall in love and she wanted mm -hmm. to marry him, but uh, her relationship with her daughter was pretty strained for a very long time. It sounds like she wasn't really interested in mothering <laughs> in, a, in a traditional sense. And um, when they returned to Paris in 1902, they ended up leaving uh, Maeve in the care of um, Constance's mother, Lady Gore Booth. Um, and then I guess they were reunited for a while when, um, Constance and, uh, Casimir moved back to Dublin, but from about 1908, Maeve lived almost exclusively with her grandparents in Ireland, mm -hmm. uh, at Lisdale house, Lisdale house. Um, and now I think one of the sources we read talked about the fact that like later in life, mm -hmm. they kind of reconciled. Yes, they did. Yeah. And uh, I have two notes on that. So one is that when they met as adults, they had seen so little of each other that they, mother and daughter, didn't recognize each other, which seems incredible, sad. Yeah. very sad. And, uh, but they did reconcile later on. And um, the marriage between Casimir and Constance yeah. was a bit rough, but later in life that sort of, she kind of patched that up. So. Oh, I didn't see that. We'll get into it when we get there, but she definitely did make amends and, and build up relationships with people that people are oh, oh. relationships that she had that she had kind of abandoned right in early focus in on her, her work and her yeah mission. right yeah i have that uh she and her husband separated in 1909 and the note mm. i have says that they separated amicably mm. um but it's nice to hear that she kind of rekindled right. those relationships yeah. later in yeah, her life and it does sound like towards the end of her life her um priorities kind of shifted right as i think is not unusual, you know, somebody gets I yeah, I believe towards gets the end of their right. life and, and starts kind of reevaluating what is kind of personally most important to them. And uh, not to say that her work wasn't so important <laughs> to her because it certainly was right up until the end, I think. Right. But um, yeah. So, but at, at the time um, in the early years of the 1900s, um, she was kind of not spending as much time <laughs> with her, with her, uh, her husband and her daughter, um, as pursuing other things. Now, before they separated, um, they, uh, as, as I mentioned, they moved back to Dublin from Paris in 1908. And this return for them to Dublin kind of coincided with a period of literary and cultural renaissance in Ireland. And I remember, do you remember, did you take the class in, um, university? We both did English literature together. Mm -hmm. And, um, I remember taking a class that was like, Irish um plays mm -hmm. um yes. and it focused a lot on this this very period yes. um at the Abbey Theatre and a lot uh -huh. of famous plays were written and performed there around mm -hmm. this time and it was all kind of part of the Irish nationalism movement right. so I thought that was really cool that they were involved in that mm -hmm. when I started doing reading through the research for this I thought oh I've been here before mm -hmm. <laughs> I understood it a lot more now reading through it than mm -hmm. I did while taking that course oh like, yeah this is terrible Irish politics this is like so twisted and tangled and <laughs> just messy and whoa I don't know anyone's name and it's just <laughs> such a big muck, muck. <laughs> so I remember going ah but uh, but now I was like okay now I get a little bit more what's going on and I think I have a <laughs> um, 
a compilation of plays of Irish plays <laughs> that was a textbook from that class. I think I still got it in yeah. my uh, on <laughs> yes. my bookshelf. Now I kind of all have to go home and like pull it out and be like, oh, yeah, 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 get it yes. now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so apparently, as we said, um, they were both very involved at the Abbey Theater and with this this um, artistic circle. Um, including, I mean, as we said, they were both more into visual art. Um, so they would display their paintings, but they also got involved in producing and acting in plays at the Abbey Theater, which that's pretty cool. And in 1907, they co-founded the United Arts Club, um, which, you know, all this is really, I mean, I feel like even without the kind of next phase of her life, she's pretty interesting at this yeah, point. Absolutely. Uh, but it is kind of about this point where her interest in, um, Irish nationalism and activism <laughs> and more kind of politics started to really take precedence for her over her artistic ambitions. And I kind of wonder if maybe this is one of the reasons that she and her husband mm. grew apart, perhaps. I can absolutely see him uh, watching this revolutionary fervor growing and becoming more and more worried. You mm. know, what what are you doing? What are you dragging us into? You know, do I want to be involved with this? Because it's one thing to to be part of the arts culture in a city and it's a complete other thing to be sniping from rooftops <laughs> as yes. we will see so yeah I mean, yeah exactly i mean it's right. not like the abbey theater they were quite political and they were kind right. of they were speaking to and about irish nationalism and what was going on at the time through art but yeah right. it sounds like right. or we know that she became more and more interested <laughs> in the in the um fight yes. the literal fight itself right. and, yeah. and the movement yeah the movement towards uh nationalism than in artistic expressions about it <laughs> yes i can see that militancy um mm -hmm. scaring off a lot of people in her life and mm -hmm. and i can't say that i wouldn't feel the same you know if you had someone in your life who you know you're both on this sort of the same theoretical side and mm -hmm. and then they're taking up arms and you have to decide if you're okay with this or not yeah. you know that's that's can that can be tough so yeah absolutely yeah. I, mean, yeah I mean it's i think it's for me it's kind of no judgment either way mm. but yeah i i can imagine that would be a a complicated thing to watch somebody close to you somebody that you care about you know yeah would you be on their side if they became more militant and, mm. and literally started taking up arms and, <laughs> yeah how do you and, deal with and that And you would be very involved as our family right but you become a target and suddenly mm -hmm. you're in danger and mm -hmm. your children if they're with you are in danger or your mm -hmm. other family members right so by her participating in all of these activities as much as i admire her enterprise and her you know ferocity behind these these um these I'm trying to say <laughs> these um, activities um i can see why family members would be very concerned and maybe choose to distance themselves or choose to mm -hmm. remove themselves from the situation so you can really see both sides mm -hmm. and uh i think you know i think as well that maybe it was for the best that her daughter was with her grandparents yes, during this phase. because it, yeah. i mean really she was just literally in no position to really be a mother mm. or a parent during this period right <laughs> so yes. get into she's she, in and out of prison and all the time fighting yes. and like how could you possibly <laughs> right. successfully Bring, parent a kid taught her along for yeah. all of it yeah so. i also thought when doing this research that how we wouldn't even comment on this if it were a man in this position no that's right? very true we, you're right I, oh my god <laughs> heather <laughs> Uh, on International Women's Day, too, and I fell into that trap. It's so hard to avoid. No, it is. It is. And I only thought that myself after doing, after reading multiple websites and making these notes. And then I thought, you, you know, I'm going on and on here about this. Again. And yep. here we are again. You Talking know, about if her. If this had been her husband doing this, the fact that the daughter was left behind and the Wouldn't relationship was put on hold would just be sort of assumed or, and, and that's it. Right. Oh, my and God. So I thought, ah. Oh, <laughs> yes, man. ourselves. But Jeez. there you go. Just I'm so you know, glad you that, said that. Another thing to think of. Right? Man, it's yeah. just so easy to fall into that trap. It's so ingrained. It's, it's so ingrained. ingrained. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So, but you're right. It's a it's a very good thing that her daughter wasn't there. Mm. And you know, I'm glad her husband removed himself from the situation if he didn't <laughs> want to be a part of it as much as she did. So well, we don't really know, right? Whether yeah. like who. Left yeah, we don't who know. Or, yeah, where he was, was or what was going on. But, right. Right. Yes. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> wow. Mind blown. Thanks, Heather. It was blowing my mind. <laughs> Hashtag mind blown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So, um, in 1908. So this was again, you know, kind of the year before she separated from her husband. Um, she joined this organization. Okay. Forgive us. <laughs> uh, Sin Fine, which I think is, 
that's not too difficult. I think I'm maybe saying that semi-correctly. This next one, though. Oh, my God. <laughs> so she joins in fine. And I was going to make you say these. I was going to say, I can't believe you haven't thrown me to the wolves. Yet. Well, you say it then. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so it's a revolutionary women's group group named Inghind Naaran. <laughs> And Beautiful. translated from the Gaelic, that means Daughters of Ireland. We'll go with that. So, yes. <laughs> uh, and so that was a women's group, and then Sinn Féin was a political party. Mm-hmm. So she joined both of those in the same year. And this seems to be the year that her Irish nationalism really takes hold, and she commits yeah. to joining these these parties. And Yeah, at the same time, she became um, a regular contributor as a writer to this um, women's nationalist journal this the first iron ireland's um women's nationalist journal called uh oh god ben uh, I, I don't have the notes on that one so you you're all alone translated women of ireland <laughs> there we go <laughs> so i mean this was coming for her out of a, a history of being interested in in um, political movements she she had been interested in women's suffrage um, when she was younger and in 1896 she was presiding over meetings of the Sligo Women's Suffrage Society and she did you know I feel like how could you a woman like her how could you not be a Mm. suffragist (laughs) at the same time as being an Irish nationalist it would have been terribly incongruous yeah she She was like we shouldn't have the vote (laughs) we should bear arms (laughs) no no voting (laughs) yeah um but her kind of her heart was more with the nationalist cause and that's where she she increasingly gave more and more of her time to these organizations All right. So the notes that I have on this time period are, like I mentioned earlier, um, this is where she had to fight against her aristocratic background um, and was met with more suspicion than welcome by these groups and and these parties. Um, But after years of dedicated work and you know, sort of literally showing up to fight. She uh, um, earned their trust. And uh, around this time, she started doing things like she stopped standing for God Save the King. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's just little little details like that where you go, okay, everyday life is different. Um, the next year, 1909, she formed Nafiana Iron, uh, which means Soldiers of Ireland. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a boys group uh, loosely based on the Boy Scouts. Uh, and it's a Republican organization. So these young Irish boys are being trained to be nationalist soldiers. So it's sort of like a breeding ground for future um, national army. Um, and they're, they were taught shooting and sort of combat skills. And Constance taught the shooting herself because I she was that. a great shot. And uh, so the, the aims of this organization, as, as you kind of pointed out, um, you know, meant establishing an independent ireland and also promoting the irish language mm-hmm. yes so i want they must have all spoke gaelic and or maybe spoke Gaelic. i don't know no the it was well, well during the in the organization yeah, they did. yeah. correct yeah sorry i thought you meant that the irish also spoke no, gaelic. no. <laughs> i realize well, no, that's, that's yeah, not the case yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> that's okay <laughs> uh so i love as we mentioned earlier she was she was quite a uh i said strident orator but apparently <laughs> she was also very flamboyant and i can kind of see her artistic background and her perhaps her back background in acting mm. uh kind of led towards her her dynamic persona and she had a penchant for military uniforms as well (laughs) and weaponry and she apparently just was often all rigged out and just like covered in (laughs) in guns and all sorts of things yeah Yeah. so she became quite a kind of celebrity in uh, especially in these circles um and i think you know she probably became fairly well known just in general and i think you know, her kind of general demeanor and her look, yes. her, her very militant, um, uh, armed look, mm. uh, made her kind of an easy target at the same time for opposing viewpoints and, you know, they would probably laugh at her, but she, she was this polarizing figure. And- right. I think she would be a political cartoonist's dream. Oh my God. Wouldn't <laughs> yes. she? Yeah. And I have a quote here, um, that when someone asked her for fashion advice, 
or when women in general, she was asked for fashion advice, she would say, quote, to dress suitably in short skirts and strong boots, leave your jewels in the bank and buy a revolver. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> it's like, All right. Short skirts, strong boots, revolver. Revolver. <laughs> no diamonds. Lock up the pearls. <laughs> and then um, in parades, when she would appear in parades, she showed up so heavily armed, quote, that the casual onlooker might be readily pardoned for mistaking her for the representative of an enterprising firm of small arms manufacturers. <laughs> so she basically looks like, her, just like uh, covered in yeah, like just, belts of yeah, bullets. Like and ammo. Yeah, yeah ammo. slung all over. And yeah, like, like, a, like hip holsters and thigh holsters and stuff. She's like, you know, today's sort of uh, female superheroes in, in movies. Like just just like armed to the teeth. Early 20th century female Irish Rambo. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. With I'm picturing like a, a I know bandana knotted like around her forehead. Yeah. Around her forehead. I totally am. A I green, was, a green bandana. A green one. Yeah, absolutely. I was totally picturing that. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> All right, so we jump forward a few years to 1911. Um, she was arrested uh, for the first time. So this is her first arrest, but not her last. She Mm-mm. basically spent almost the rest of her life going in and out of jail, unfortunately. Um, she was arrested for demonstrating against King George V's visit to Ireland. Um, and they had a quote that she was in a crowd um, most of the crowd was waving uh, the Union Jack, and in protest, she was waving a black flag. <laughs> and um, a gentleman in the crowd—not a very gentleman, uh, but a man in the crowd—didn't uh, like the, what her her um, opinion here, and so hit her with his flag his and Union the flag, Jack. his Union Jack, and then uh, it broke over her back. <laughs> it was like, take that! It's a great uh, yeah. tidbit. <laughs> <laughs> So um, this was the first of her arrests and imprisonments. Um, And then we see other, all kinds of political activities. Um, 1913 to 14, there was a lockout um, of thousands of workers who refused to reject union membership. And I really like her involvement in the labor movements and that as well, Mm -hmm. um, because her interests were so wide ranging, right? Like Mm -hmm. she starts from like an arts background and then all of a sudden she's supporting like labor unions and, you know, she's she's everywhere at once. Um, So these thousands of people who have gotten locked out of their jobs, um, she provided food for the workers and their families during that that lockout so um you know luckily she had the background the financial background to do that um and then we start getting into the real nitty-gritty so we Mm. jump to 1916 and anyone familiar with irish history at this point will know that in april there was an event called the easter rising and this was bloody and and pretty awful Mm -hmm. and the years to follow uh likewise and uh so this was a republican insurrection so when we refer to the irish republicans it was anyone fighting for for independence independence from um, british control and uh, this happened in dublin so it was an insurrection against the british government and Constance took part in this. She had a major part in this. Did so, you say what year it was? So it was 1916 in okay. April. Um, and so she started out, it seems like sort of, she sort of eased her way in. Um, she was doing some nursing, sewing the rebel flag, um, carrying important messages. And these are things that we've seen women do in, you know, sort of almost any, any battle, I think mm-hmm. of like the American woman who sewed the flag and this sort of thing. Right. And I thought, oh, okay, well, this is very typical of her. And then, <laughs> then she gets up on a rooftop and basically spends the rest of the insurrection, um, as a sniper mm. on the rooftop, which seems like a better use of her skills. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, yeah, I love that, that like somebody finally... <laughs> Right. It was like, well, she's a good shot. You know, <laughs> there's one of her, her, up there. her, her skills from childhood. <laughs> right. Make her a sniper. I would love to know if she sort of elbowed her way onto mm. the rooftop or if someone was like, hey, Constance. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a good, head, that's head a good up question. There. So um, <laughs> uh, this went on for, I think it was almost a week. And the, mm-hmm. the, um, Republicans were starving, basically. Yeah. Um, the well, they were blockaded the city, and yeah, they were very well. And the British were just there were more of them. They yes. were more well trained, and they had more money, and just kind of the Irish were really, unfortunately, very much outnumbered, outgunned, outmaneuvered. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this week kind of, I think it, it got worse and worse, and they ended up um, being forced to retreat. Right. And then um, 
they surrendered. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so a general surrender was called, um, and she was arrested and imprisoned, as you might imagine, mm. with all the rest of the. Do you have this detail though about like when she surrendered? Turn herself in. Yes, <laughs> so great. And this is definitely theater background. Yeah. yeah. So uh, when the general surrender was called, and she has to turn herself in, and of course give over her weapons, she <laughs> turned herself over with maximum theatricality. <laughs> so she <laughs> gently kisses her gun hands it over and declares, I am ready. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. It's very theatrical. (laughs) (laughs) She can't just, you know, go quietly. No. has to be a production. Uh, But hey, why not, right? You know, if you have to surrender to the enemy force, might as well go out with style. So, um... Although many women had participated in the rebellion, uh, she was the only one court-martialed. Um, and again, she couldn't just sit by while a court decides her fate. She was like a firebrand in the court, too. So I have quotes about her browbeating the witnesses into tears. Uh, she savaged one witness's testimony until he recanted and changed his statements. So like, from the accused box is like just That's harping on people until they change their story. Um, all the while, she dared the officers standing around to shoot her. <laughs> just such a punk yeah it's just uh, her her lack of respect for authority is just it's awesome awesome (laughs) um cherry bomb so she ended up sentenced to death um however this was commuted to a lifetime of penal servitude which sounds awful Mm. uh because of her gender and i I hope people realize penal penal servitude just means in a penal colony like in a prison (laughs) like in a The way you said that, you're like, like, it sounds awful. We don't want to mislead anybody about what this sentence was. Now she finds herself in a floating brothel. (laughs) Now, would you prefer a floating brothel to one on land? (laughs) To a non-floating brothel. (laughs) So, uh, you know, she, you would imagine that some people would be happy to not be sentenced to death and instead to penal servitude. But, um... Uh, she met this act of mercy with fury and she cried, why didn't they let me die with my friends? <laughs> so <laughs> Again, another kind of touch of the dramatic, yes. I think. <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> um, so uh, although many of the rebels were executed during this time and many more imprisoned, um, by 1917, so the next year, uh, there was a general amnesty called and anyone who was still alive was released. Well, and the, just to give a little bit of context, the mm-hmm. um, I think public opinion kind of yes. in general in the British Isles had initially been against the Irish in this right. rebellion. They were, you know, rising up and being difficult and whatever. Mm-hmm. But the tide of opinion really turned against the British in their response because they were, it was just a bloodbath. Yeah, I mean, it they horrible. were, yeah. it was awful. And that was well known. And uh, um, so as this kind of became... well known Mm. uh the pressure to to release these people um the surviving um, people who had fought in this rebellion uh became so great that as this that's what led to this this amnesty in um in 1917 right because i have notes about the british executing it says here swaths of irish people including pacifists and civilians who had nothing to do with the Mm -hmm. rebellion Mm -hmm. so they just came down so heavily handed that they ended up turning public favor against themselves. Yeah. And then, uh, and then this amnesty was the result of that. So, um, so although, uh, Constance gets out of jail on this general amnesty, she's right back in again, <laughs> mirroring, uh, one of our, our earlier guest ladies, mirroring, uh, big Bertha who yes. in and out of jail, but for very different reasons. Yeah. So she, uh, Constance, Constance is a little more sympathetic. I, I agree. <laughs> yes. But, uh, so she's out of jail, but then quickly jailed again. Uh, she was accused of participating in a plot against the British government, um, whether this was true or not. I, I couldn't find in any of my notes. It was but, called a uh, German plot oh, that I was seeing. So, but I don't, again, like I, I wasn't seeing anything about the specifics of this, why it was a German right. plot or what the Germans had to do with this <laughs> or whether it was all made up or what. But. Right, right. I can see the British definitely having more than enough motive on their side or at least desire mm. on their side to get her back in jail as quickly as possible. I but, mean, actually, though, given the time period, this is like during... World War One, so ah, so perhaps if yeah, accusations of a German mm, plot. Interesting. I had a little made more that sense. connection. Yeah, it right. just now occurred to yes. me that that's probably oh. what was going on. Right. Good to know. Okay, so perhaps. Context. Perhaps. Whoa. <laughs> uh, so by 
December of 1918, uh, she's in jail completing her sentence. Um, and I love this, that she ends up elected to the House of Commons as representative for the Dublin St. Patrick's Division uh, while imprisoned. While in prison. <laughs> so, you know, so you, can, cool. you can imprison her, but this is not going to stop her uh, her political power and well, her leadership. And uh, she was actually the first woman elected to the mm-hmm. British Parliament, yes. which is pretty dang cool. And I think we would cover her just for that fact alone yeah. without discovering all the rest of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, I like that as well. <laughs> um, so, but because she was a member of Sinn Féin, which we're not sure if we're saying correctly, uh, which was sort of the um, self-created Irish parliament, um, all members or anyone who was a member of Sinn Féin and was also elected to the House of Commons uh, refused to swear the oath in the House of Commons because mm-hmm. it was an oath of allegiance to the king. Um, and so none of those those people chose to take their seats. Um, so while they had been elected, they they chose not to participate because basically they have their own government. Yeah. And um, so they set up, uh, again, the Dale Iran, so a provisional Irish government. So basically you can elect us to the House of Commons, but we've got our own government that we're mm-hmm. going to run here and uh, we'll do a better job or just as good. <laughs> And she was, uh, I have here that she was appointed secretary for labor in mm-hmm. this government, mm-hmm. which I thought that's pretty cool. Yes. I, ha- I think I had that later on. Oh yeah. It's my next bullet point that she was the minister of labor. Um, and she held that post until she was defeated in the 1922 elections for a so, very long time. Yeah. Yeah. A number of years. And, uh, I like that as well. It made sense with the, the earlier strike action she was involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So. Unfortunately, after these elections and the creation of the Dáil Aran, uh, the brutality of the British um, in Ireland escalated really quickly. And uh, so they started hiring uh, mercenaries and ex-soldiers and just sort of anyone they could cobble together um, to subdue the population. So they were hunting down members of this government. So basically, if you were a member of the Dáil Aran, um, you had a target on your back um, mm. in the British eyes. And uh, so they, Constance and her group spent a lot of time hiding. And they had to hide their activities and they had to communicate secretly. And it was all very much underground. Um, so this took some creativity. And we have some great points about the things they were up to to hide their activities and hide themselves. Um, so they had offices, naturally. But she installed pianos in the office so that it would look like a music <laughs> school. <laughs> Just lucky. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, then she was meeting with a factory representative from a rosary bead factory, of, of all things. Um, so and, Irish. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know. I thought that too. Like, how stereotypical can you get? So she's meeting with him on behalf of the unions. Um, and she would con- constantly interrupt him with how much time he had left in their meeting because she couldn't stay in any one place too long because basically like the Brits would catch up with her if she stayed anywhere for too long. So I think she agreed to like, you have half an hour. And then she'd be like, you have 20 minutes. You have 10, 10 minutes. minutes. <laughs> Five like, minutes. Countdown. And he kept interrupting him. And he got, like a classic got, negotiation yeah, strategy. Yeah, it just seems so great. So eventually he caved on whatever the union issue was because he was like, oh my God, I can't deal with this. Such an awesome <laughs> yeah, so little tidbit shout this out. <laughs> and um one time when the group realized that their offices were about to be raided, she had a whole bunch of sensitive papers in a briefcase and she fled the office and then didn't know what to do. Like, where am I going to dump these papers? So she, she went by the, um, a secondhand store that was friendly to their cause and she ducks inside puts the suitcase like prominently displayed in the front window, puts an enormously outrageous, like expensively, pr- or, sorry, an, an outrageously expensive price on the tag and leaves it there in plain sight. <laughs> and it was there for days before she came back for it. And no one bought it. <laughs> no one suspected anything of this like dusty shop window. Um, so they had all kinds of strategies that uh, they used and just a lot of, um, you know, quick thinking under pressure and this sort of thing. So she was definitely very creative. Yeah. Um, it's pretty cool. Yes. like that. So this brings us to 1922. Um, something called the Irish Free State is created and the Dale Iran, which was the provisional government, was rolled into the new, oh boy, Orectus. <laughs> so the Irish Parliament uh, became their lower house. So what the British were trying to do here is basically like take all the politicians that have already, <clears throat> sorry, already been um, elected and sort of roll them into, like bundle them into this new, um, as the lower house of this new government. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that caused is basically a rift within the movement mm-hmm. because some um, of the Irish were willing to have this happen and some were saying, no, this is just going to become sort of the same thing over again. And uh, Well, and it was basically, there was a treaty as well, right? Right, yes. That the English, the Anglo-Irish Treaty um, 
so there was an amnesty and, and mm-hmm. kind of a, I guess, a settling down of, of the actual fighting. Right. Um, and, and in amongst this, Constance was opposed to the treaty and she was a vocal opponent of the treaty. Right. As is kind of unsurprising, I guess, at this point. <laughs> as she, we would predict. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. And again, she served as a rooftop, rooftop sniper during this sort of civil war of the Irish party. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this time she was sniping against fellow comrades. Mm. So you can imagine that being a much tougher yeah. situation. Um, or more, it's a little more conflicting yeah, yeah. Than, than her previous time. And so after this, we see her putting down her arms for good. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, so you know how much it must have affected her to have to do that. So. Yeah. Uh, so at this point, as you said, she, you know, she gives up. She gives up literally fighting. Um, but she ends up, uh, the same year, 1922, she ends up on this speaking tour of America. And uh, she pub- she continued to publicize her anti-treaty position on this tour. Um, and in she, she published a few, I don't know, books or pamphlets or what, um, extolling, extolling her views. Uh, and we have, I have one quote here. Um, I'm not sure if this is from a speech or from one of her writings, but she says, It is the capitalist interests in England and Ireland that are pushing this treaty to block the march of the working people in England and Ireland. Now I say that Ireland's freedom is worth blood and worth my blood, and I will willing, willingly give it for it. And I appeal to the men of the dial to stand true. So she's still, you know, talking mm-hmm. pretty bloody rhetoric mm-hmm. um, and is, is still very much fighting for <laughs> a much more independent Irish nation, uh, which is uh, it's who she is. Absolutely. You do words. you, Constance. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so also the 22 was like a lot happened in that year. It was a busy year. I have a a busy year because she ended up uh, losing her seat in the Mm, election during this year. Um, but then the next year she was elected to the free state parliament in August of 1923. Mm -hmm. I have my notes for 23. I mentioned that she was again elected, but again, refused to take the oath of allegiance. Um, and after this, she sort of cooled down her political career. Well, and one of the, I don't know if this is partially her decision or more mm-hmm. coming out of what I have as um, apparently a well, not apparently, but unsurprising, uh, the increasingly hostile general attitude mm. toward female politicians. Hmm. Um, so it's interesting, right? Like you see in the suffrage movement and like in women's movements, there's there can often be this like initial kind of acceptance and rushing in and women rushing and like doing all of these things that you read later and you're like, wait, really? And then, (laughs) and then it kind of takes three steps backwards. Um, and there's this reaction against that. And then, you know, it becomes harder for women to, to do these things again. I was just listening to a podcast about this recently, Mm. actually. I can't remember what specifically it was about, but it was talking about this kind of just general, um, recognized phenomenon hmm. where you know you you think you've made progressive strides in some in some area, um, one person kind of breaks through a barrier, and then you think, oh, this is it, we've broken through the barrier, right. and then there's a backlash against right. that, and then it is years and years and much more work hmm. afterwards to get a repetition and to get kind of more. Um, more and more mm. people doing it. Anyway, that's to, to normalize. To normalize it. it. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah. So because of this kind of hostile attitude, um, she was viewed with more and more suspicion um, by her fellow Republicans. Um, and then I have here her, her last arrest. I don't know if you have anything no. about this. In uh, November 1923, she was arrested for the final time. I don't actually know what for. Um, but she was released fairly soon afterwards because she went on a hunger strike in protest. Mm, I think this was about the time period where um, a lot of women suffragists were, were going on hunger strikes and finding that a fairly uh, successful tactic to mm. take. So in 1926, she joined a new party, uh, the Fianna Fail. Uh, and that translates as soldiers of destiny. <laughs> so a lot of her rhetoric was hyperbolic and this, this is no different. Um, and so it was a new political party and she joined upon its creation. And uh, this became the dominant party in Republican Ireland and basically has been almost ever since um, its creation. So it's still uh, very strong today. Hmm, that's and, pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And then in uh they also talk about so besides the fact that she's still participating in politics um 
they talk about she starts doing more charity work at this time mm-hmm. as well. So it seems like things are kind of slowing down on the on the political side. As we talked about earlier, right? I think this is the part in her life where she's starting to reevaluate her. Yes. And this is probably at the point where she's it kind is. of reconnecting yes. with her daughter and Re- her. Yeah. Reconnecting with family. And it says she even became a little bit religious. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, there were a few details like she became an avid motorist. I love this. <laughs> and, and a mechanic, like a decent mechanic. And Do you uh, have the, the note about what she did? Yeah. The car. Oh, yeah. I, I love it so <laughs> yeah. much. So the last thing about the car was that her car would often break down and, uh, you know, people could see her middle-aged Constance, like having taken off her dress to protect it in her underwear, like <laughs> fixing her car on the side of the road. Kind of thing. And then, um, and then I love this. She's still like active and, and working for the people and, you know, labor strikes and all this kind of thing. So there was a labor strike, um, one winter, I guess, and coal became really scarce. And so she began driving her car into the mountains, hauling back coal and distributing it to senior citizens who couldn't easily fend for themselves, which I think is a lovely, a lovely detail. I love it too. And I love that she's never afraid to get her hands dirty. You know, no, like there's no point in life where she's like, oh, well, let the young folks take yeah. care of that. You know, she just never She's not like standing down. back and organizing. Right. She's literally yeah. in she's the trenches. On the front lines, taking care of whatever needs to be taken care of. It's pretty, yeah. pretty cool. It's really impressive. Um, so unfortunately though, really, I mean, all of that took a real toll Mm -hmm. on her, um, her health over the years and all that time in and out of jail. And as you can imagine, she experienced uh, some rough treatment. Mm. Um, and, uh, she just, it ended up kind of weakening her body and, and leading to some, some poor health. And unfortunately in 1927, she was only 59, uh, when she died of peritonitis, which was um, complications from appendicitis. Mm-hmm. Um, so she died in Dublin at Sir Patrick Dunn's Hospital on the 15th of July, 1927, age 59. Mm-hmm. And I have that uh, there was a very well-attended public funeral, nice. which is pretty cool. And she was buried in Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin. So there's a little a little spot to go visit if you're yes, in Dublin. Yes. I feel like no matter where I travel now, if it's anywhere where a yester lady we've covered I know. has been or there's a monument to them or their grave or something, like now I'm obligated to and and very happily obligated yes. to go Check it visit out. the sites. Oh, yeah. I was thinking that too. We need to like, we, I think we were talking at one point, right, about like a yester lady's North American road yes. trip or something. But now we need to have like a, a yester lady's world, like world tour. World tour. I completely agree. <laughs> Our continental tour. <laughs> Our, it's not too late. Our grand tour. Grand tour, yes. yeah, we're not too old <laughs> <Absolutely>. for that. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Excellent, it's a plan. All right, and let us know if you want to join us on this grand tour. <laughs> we got a travel agent. We'll do the whole thing. It'll be amazing. Down, we can record line. on the road as well. We're oh my Record gosh. from significant uh, locations. I'm liking this history. idea. I really more, more. This is a thing. <laughs> it is. It should be. Brilliant. Make it a thing. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all we have mm-hmm. on uh, Constance Markovitz. Yes. Who, ooh, I don't know if you even ever mentioned that she preferred, she her official title was Countess Markovitz, but she preferred to be called Madam Markovitz, <laughs> which I don't know why, but. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just less aristocratic oh maybe that's more, it yeah more democratic yeah. you do you constance it's <laughs> our message for this uh, yeah so you do you you do you and i think that's a great message for international yes, women's day i agree um, so uh, thanks for sticking with us through all of this irish history uh i think this has been one of my favorite of our of our more recent uh, episodes actually Heather. i got so, really excited when i was looking no, her I up her. i got to choose this this topic and uh i was looking up different candidates going meh and then I saw her and I was like, wow. And I texted Dana all in an uproar. You were in an uproar. It was. was great. <laughs> and a bee in my bonnet. <laughs> a good bee. A good, a good bee. Bee. A happy bee. <laughs> uh, so uh, as always, uh, we'll be posting the resources that we've used for this episode. And I have to remember, you have to remind me, Heather, to post that poem. Poem. The Yates poem. Yes. Um, so we'll post all of this stuff along with the audio for the episode on our website, yesterladies.com. Of course, you can get in touch with us on social media where we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash yesterladies. You can also find us on Twitter. Our handle is yesterladies. And we'd also love to hear from you through good old-fashioned email. So drop mm-hmm. us a line, uh, yesterladies at gmail.com. So 
Thanks for listening. I think this has been a good one. And happy St. Patrick's Day, Heather. Yes. And happy International Women's Day to you, Dana. Why, thank you. (laughs) 